0: Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. The coming episodes of the Matan Podcast, One-on-One, will be delving into women writing. In these conversations, we explore where their relationship with learning meets their identity as writers, how their creative identity intersects with their identity as women. We will hear about their passions, and what they aspire to achieve through writing. But I also seek to understand what moves them. How has writing changed them and their careers? Is being a religious female writer an identity that resonates with them and influences their process and decisions? Or perhaps not at all? Each episode takes us into a different space, each woman with a unique story and a unique area of expertise. I hope... Above all, that these episodes inspire, move, and that they may even inspire you to sit down and write and to create something that really requires intention to put aside that time and actually and actually accomplish it. I'm so grateful that you've joined us for these episodes in which I explore the creative process with these eloquent, humble, and remarkable women. Simi Peters has been teaching in the Bellows Eshkolot Educators Institute for Tanakh and Jewish Studies for the past three years at Matan, and is a senior faculty member at Nishmat. She is the author of Learning to Read Midrash, and specializes in skill building, providing access to a wide variety of classic Jewish texts for students at all levels of Jewish literacy and experience. Simi, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I have to say that you don't know this, but... I feel a little bit like you were also one of my teachers because when I was much younger, how many years ago did the book come out? Your first book? 2004, I think. 2004. Mm-hmm. So let me date myself. It was a long time ago. I mm-hmm. was, I guess, not even 20. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I bought the book. I own it. It's in my bag upstairs. And, uh, and I learned a lot from it and I learned a lot from, from its rigor and, and from its language and utilizing all different skills that we'll talk about today. And so. I want to say thank you, first of all, to have the chance to meet you and uh, and let you know that you you teach a lot of people, and that's the power of, of a book, that it reaches people even though you, you never know that it reaches them.
1: It's very gratifying to hear that, because you, when you send a book out, you just don't know where it's going to end up. Totally. It, you know, it just goes out there, and it's like... Sort of giving birth, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally, I think that is the <laughs> metaphor. That is the metaphor for book writing. You know, and <laughs> <yeah. laughs> the publisher brought the book. The uh, publisher brought the book to the house. He said, "Well, here's the here's the baby," and my youngest son was there, and he was like, "Excuse me," <laughs> he didn't like that, but that's how it felt in a lot of ways. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to circle back to that book as we as we continue forward. No matter what the topic of our series are, and, and this is a series that we're doing on women writing and women creating in all different forms. But before we get to talk about that process, I really, I really love to hear about how you got to this world of, of higher Torah education and of learning. And especially when I speak with women who are of a generation or two above me, everybody's journeys are so diverse because nothing was as clear or simple uh, at that point. And so I would love to hear how you got into this world.
1: Okay, Um, my parents were Holocaust survivors, and um, it was a home of Torah. It was a home in which Torah was very important. Uh, When I was growing up, the whole Haredi, Olam HaTorah in America, was very, very young. And um, my brother, who's eight years older than me, uh, went to yeshiva, was sent away by my parents to yeshiva at a time when people just didn't do that. Oh, wow. He was very eager to do that. That was something that he he very, very much wanted to do. I uh, was jealous. I was jealous. My father was a completely natural feminist. He learned with his daughters as well as with his son. And he was a person who learned, you know, was kovei, itim the torah at a time when people didn't do that. Mamash. Yeah. And I was, um, I went to a school where the level of the education was very, very high. Subsequently, um, I went to a Beis It was part of the Beis Reshed. It was where? called Torah Academy for Girls in Far Rockaway. Okay. Rabbi Whiteman was, uh, I think a pioneer in, in giving quality, uh, Torah education to women. Still exists. Yes. It's, <laughs> I have to say, and through no fault of the school necessarily, it's been many years, some of my nieces went to that school. At the time, I had excellent teachers, and they really turned me on. And I was thirsty. I remember <laughs> my mother was a little bummed about this. She, um, you know, we would go shopping, and and I would buy sparring, and she wanted me to buy clothes. <laughs> you know, but no, she she was she was proud of me. But but you know, it was a it was a little bit of a leap for her. Yeah, coming from Europe. Um, so I just got turned on in high school and, and I was eager and hungry and just kept learning. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I got into Midrash was I started teaching. I didn't, I didn't do any formal teacher's education or anything like that. Um, I started teaching when I was 19 in the day school system while I was in college. And I continued for a few years in the day school system before I made Aliyah after graduate school. And it always bothered me that I could explain how Rashi and the Ramban worked, um, but I couldn't explain, and I used a lot of Midrash in my teaching, because in, in a Beis Yaakov system you do do a lot of Midrash. Um, and Rashi brings Midrash, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, m- most of the parshanim allude to Midrash. I was using Midrash in my teaching because I would go back to the original source and use it in actually teaching. I did a lot of teaching of Nach, and there are a lot of things that oh, you really can't teach without midrash. And I couldn't, I could sort of wing it, but I I wasn't comfortable with the degree to which I didn't have that rigor. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is how the midrash is working, and this is how I'm deriving my reading. So after I'd been in Israel, I guess, it, it was in 2004. So I'd been in it, my oldest was four. I uh got ex- uh I got accepted in 2002, maybe, I don't remember, the Jerusalem Fellows Program, and I spent two years getting the background and the rigor that I wanted.
0: So um, what
1: What does that mean? Meaning, was that an academic? It endeavor? was an academic. It, it, today, it's called the Mandel Leadership oh, Whatever okay. Thingy, yeah. I don't know what they call it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's taken on a much more political focus, but mm-hmm. at the time... Uh, they they liked me because I was the token Haredi woman. Exactly. Yeah. You, you know, filled a nice little. Yeah. I f- I filled a checked off a lot mm-hmm. of boxes. Yeah. Um, and what what I I had the most amazing manche uh, in the program who's, um, uh Dr. Zalkin, Dr. Mm-hmm. Avram Zalkin, Zatal, I say that without any uh, cynicism. Mm-hmm. He's he was a yakiri yeah, Yerushalayim, a gentle. Wise man with a lot of knowledge and a um, mechanech um, to his bone, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he he helped he guided me in my study. Um, I was able, as a, a member of the fellowship, to take courses at Hebrew U. Um, so I got to learn with Yana Frankel, mm-hmm. who was a giant. I think and he midrash was, for those who don't know midrash yeah. and daggadah. He's yeah. the person who got the Israeli academic establishment to sit up and pay serious attention to Agadol Chazal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was like learning from, I don't know, you know, the founder of a field, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And I took other courses as well. Um, and I read a lot and I learned a lot and I, you know, developed my approach to Midrash. And all throughout these years,
0: you're teaching in institutions. In yeah, New I'm teaching
1: in all sorts of um, 18-year-old programs, you know. You I have to say purpose. that
0: my personal memory is I was I went to shelving for women in the mm-hmm. first year it existed and then it was in the old Holy Land Hotel and you taught in Darchebina right yes I taught yes Dar and you taught a friend of mine who you know was in the slightly more uh, what do they call it yeshivish or right track and so she was there and I remember that you were you were the teacher who was the textual right you I'm sure there were others but I meaning I remember your name as being the rigorous right that was a class that was going to have rigor and right. you had to right. come come ready.
1: Yeah, and um, yeah, I was. I, I'm a demanding teacher. I think it's the highest compliment you can pay to your students mm-hmm. is to trust them to be capable of meeting your standards and giving them the highest possible level of intellectual, spiritual challenge in Talmud Torah. So. Uh, and you, and with that in mind, meaning you really taught
0: at. Institutions that sort of cover a bit of a cross-section of the Orthodox world, mm-hmm. which you've already, I guess, given us a little bit of insight into that growing up in what you called even back then a Haredi-ish home.
1: Yeah. They, and, we People didn't talk about Haredi. No, I'm saying it's a little bit of an anachronistic more like, word. It so. was, yeah, it's an anachronistic word. It, it was like we were the frummies in Farakoy. People right. like us were, were the, the Black Hatters, mm-hmm. we got called. Um... Uh, I could do a whole podcast on my parents. Yeah. You know that generation. <laughs> well, <about> you back? <laughs> no, that generation of survivors who brought yeah. passion and fire and determination all over wherever they went. Those who remained uh, religious and committed to halakha and committed to committed to reconstructing the Judaism that they had come from as far as they could, yeah. which you can't in a new place like America, especially. Uh, they, they, that was like the, the, the fire and the air and the water and the bread and the everything of my life and of a whole generation of, uh, of, uh, mostly young men, but also some young women. And, and
0: when you find yourself today teaching into wonderful institutions that further women's learning in a very non, you know, it's a non Haredi welt. So where does that meet you? Meaning is is that a place that you feel comfortable in because you've always been this woman who learns and that's a natural place for women who learn, or is there some sort of I, I What think, kind of awareness do you bring into that space?
1: I think that for me, uh, where I teach doesn't matter as much as that I'm teaching Jewish women. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not I'm I'm not a political person. I'm not into politics. I'm not always comfortable with the kav taken by the institutions I teach in, whether it is a Haredi institution or a Dati Lumi institution Mm -hmm. or a modern Orthodox institution. But I don't have to be. As long as nobody restricts my teaching and I'm able to do what I do and not compromise my own intellectual integrity or my own religious lines, then I'm okay with that. I've taught all kinds of people. Um, and sometimes I look back and I think, well, you know, I should put that on my resume. I once taught a theater troupe of um, Jews and non-Jews who were involved in a, an educational program I was consulting for um, so that they would understand what, what the process of Talmud Torah is like on the subject of pure Kavot, which mm-hmm. is, is something you can teach to people who have no background. Um, I remember one of the actors said, who is Rabbi Akiva, and why should I listen to him? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I mean, I've taught lots of people in lots of settings, and as long, again, as long as I'm not um, compromising my own uh, standards and values, whether religiously or intellectually, uh, I'm good with that. It's very interesting. I live almost next door to Neva Yerushalayim, and um People always ask me, why don't you teach in their programs? And I said, well, if you teach in certain programs, y- they're not going to invite you to teach there, which I get. I totally get. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a problem with that. But recently, I started giving a few guests Shiurim at Midrash Atihila, which is on the Neve campus. It's yeah. part of the Neve network. So it's it's interesting, you know, the it's dynamic. But you're yeah. saying that there, there's an awareness that comes in there. But
0: in terms of your personal. Red lines, it's just makes as much as long as I have, uh, the freedom to do what I would like in my own classroom. And I'm teaching Jewish women and, and bringing that to their lives.
1: And that's, yeah, I, great, I yeah. also under certain circumstances, Jewish men, when I teach in chutzlarets, in communities where there's a dearth of opportunity for quality Talmud Torah, I'll teach men too. I don't think it's a kavod hatzibur issue. I've spoken to a Rav about this because in those communities, it's, there is no issue of kavod hatzibur in that in that setting. If you could pick two values
0: that stand at the at, at the in the front of your mind, and you're teaching young women Torah, uh, that you would want them to take with them out of the classroom, what what are those?
1: So the first is that um, it's not enough to learn Torah to be told Torah. The, what really transforms us is the process of learning Torah. Mm-hmm. I could go into, I could make a list of important values in Judaism and read it off a page, and there would be some value in that, okay? But what transforms us, what makes us uh, religiously developed personalities is the process of Talmud Torah. So I remember once giving a on a, a, a hard nitziv that I had my students look at, and they were really very unhappy because I, I made them prepare it before class, and they were struggling with it. And uh, after I had taught the nitziv, I came in and I, you know I taught the nitziv. I said to them, "Okay, what would have happened if I had summarized the nitziv for you?" And every single one of them agreed it would not have meant the same. They would have not. They would not have understood it at the same level. It would not have been the same thing. So. Mm-hmm. The process of Talmud Torah is almost as important as the bottom line message because the message has to emerge from the text. The texts are sacred and they're written this way for a reason, to engage, to pull us in, to make us understand. Like the the yeah. you need to be miagea To be okay. um The second thing that I think is very, very important to me is that if I am worried that what I will teach Will have a negative effect on someone's yerachemaim, and that is going to depend on who the student is. Obviously, their level of knowledge, uh, where they're coming from, what they need. I won't teach it, and uh, you, I, I don't know if I've always been right where I've drawn the lines. But if you have, if you do Talmud Torah without yerachemaim. You know, Alicia Benavuya. What's right. the point? Yeah. You know what? What do we? What are we trying to accomplish here? Uh, we cannot divorce Talmud Torah from from your Atshamayim, Hashem, the core religious values. So those would be my two. You know, my two points. Yeah. Okay, I want
0: us to transition into, into some of your writing. Okay, as this this uh, particular series we're doing is to really showcase the different kind of writing that women are engaged with. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to hear how you how you got to that point where you said now it's time to write a book. Right? What what was that process like?
1: Um. Well, basically, I've been teaching midrash for a long time. And I was getting tired of hearing people say things like, it's just a midrash, or hearing people's mouth off. People think they can say whatever they want about midrash, um, be- basically because there's no derech halimud that is out there in the, either the yeshivish world or in the non-yeshivish world, and a lot of people have very fundamental misunderstandings of how chazal work. And I got tired of saying, it's not just stories, okay? <laughs> it was driving me crazy. I also sort of felt like I had reached a critical mass and a, a critical, like, a bar in my teaching where it wouldn't be so hard to write a book. I also think that what was important to me was to reach more than the people in my classroom. And um, today, maybe that would be having a website where you teach on the website. But for me, that was writing a book to send it out there and I think see. It still is, by the way. The book still has a different echo than than a website does. I am relieved to hear you say that. <laughs> I am relieved to hear you say that. So, And I know that there are, t- for example, teachers uh, who would not have had access to this kind of material um, or would not have known where to look for this kind of material who found the book and found it helpful. I, it actually is used in some college courses, which I found interesting. Wow. Yeah. I guess it helps to have a non Jewish surname. I mean, maybe, you know, there's a, a Christian college that uses it, which is a little disconcerting, you know, but it's not the only one. I actually got a letter from a professor at Concordia University, um, who said he really likes the book and he uses it a lot in his course. And yeah, so it's nice. It's nice. And, and you never know who you're going to reach. I got a letter from Japan. Somebody asked me a question about the book. It was like, what? Really? Amazing. But, yeah. So you don't know. Can I just ask? You don't have to tell me your age, but what stage of life were you at when you published that book? Okay, so I'm 63, and I don't think it's a sin to be 63. I so certainly I don't. <laughs> I certainly don't, but people have all different kinds of sensitivities. I think nah. it's beautiful. My okay. grandchildren know I'm 63. Not that it means anything to them, but they, one of them said to me, Papi, at skin, <laughs> I Look, it's what did she say to me? Before were you born before
0: this day was established? Uh, So So you published this book when you were done having children. I just I just want I'll tell you why I'm asking that. Because because women God bless us. We you know we have chapters in our lives and Mm -hmm. depending on who we are, we could be more or less frustrated. Sometimes we need to hear that things come in chapters, and even though you can't do it this di- decade, you could do it next decade mm-hmm. and sometimes people people need to, women need to hear all different kinds of, of of sentences and it's just a matter of when it comes to you at the right point so I'm just curious if that because many women will describe that after they finished having their children or the youngest child was a little bit older, that there's a little bit of that brain space that hormonal hopefully calming down that it just sort of like is you're able to open up more space within you to birth, as we said, uh, another creation. So I'm just curious if that happened while you were, you know, having children or it was really after.
1: So I got married later to my, as I said, my mother's great dismay. Um, But I was 27 when I got married. Actually, it was two weeks short of my 28th birthday. And um, I have three children. And the youngest was, I think, five when the book came out, Mm -hmm. something like that. And um I had some guilt around that. I did have some guilt because it was a lot of hours in the library. I made an arrangement with a friend of mine that I was tutoring her daughter in English, and she would watch my son in the afternoons like twice a week or something like that. I think he resented it a little bit. <laughs> um
0: we could bring him on to the next series about children who've been scarred by their mothers for writing. Right. Well oh, he's joke, he's I gotten joke. over
1: he's gotten over I it. Joke. He's 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 okay. And well, no. He hasn't completely gotten over it. <laughs> okay, so, so he was still youngish. He was still he, he was out. still youngish. I figured it out. Um I think there, I think there is a, a conflict here. On the other hand, if I had waited till, if I'd waited to really, I did the fellowship when my oldest was four, and that was a lot of hours and it was a lot of work. Um, if I had waited till the kids were grown up, uh, I don't know if I would have done the things I needed to do to get to where I am today. Um, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an Indian chief. I mean, I'm a teacher, which to a large extent was helpful in terms of hours. Um, you know, you do have teachers, hours are different. Really? Because I feel like my
0: hours are all night long. Um. <laughs> No, well, during Corona with, with Zoom. And no, I mean, you're preparing all you're the prepa- time. Yeah, My your children, preparation. I, I imagine they'll hate they'll hate teaching because they'll be like, oh, teaching means emo works all the time. Right. But um, no, I, and I just want to say also, I'm not advocating anything. I'm simply asking. I, I really, as like a little anecdotal survey, I'm curious as to when w- women m- find themselves, that they're more able to go into that creative space. That's all. For some women, it might be, that they had children later and they, they, they started beforehand. And so you're already in some sort of, some sort of rhythm. There's no
1: expectation behind my question. To do the things you really want to do sometimes, uh, you know, takes its toll. I look at someone like R- Ruchi Fryer, the judge in, in Bar Park, yeah. you know, and I say, when does this woman <laughs> sleep? Does she sleep? You know, it, it it's, you have Siata Dishmaya. I have an extremely supportive husband. You know, he always backed me up. He's he, also. I think about the difference between my sister's generation and mine. The men are expected to help. You know, our generation in your generation, Allah I don't even use the word help, help anymore. Right? right. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> That's a generational. But source. in my in my sister's yeah. world, it was very very different. Correct. Right. Yes. So uh, there were all it, sorts of, to have different families. Yeah. And my father
0: has a family of the same sort. He was the only one born in America, and his six siblings are born in right. Europe. So. Right. It's a so fascinating thing.
1: It's, it's you know, it's very, it, a lot of circumstances affect this. But what I do tell younger scholars who ask me, you know, and they say, well, I'll do the doctorate after the kids are older. I say to them, consider that you may not want to do the doctorate. You may be out of the schvung when the kids are older. Mm-hmm. Consider the possibility that you should do it anyway.
0: Yeah, I actually found doing it when my kids were very little and I had some in the middle. I found that it was... Also a good balance for me where I was holding in life. Like it was good to have that the haven during the day of the intellectual it was also a life where my children were actually in frameworks until a quarter to four, which is no longer existing now that they're school aged. Right, right. Um, and it was a good, it created a good balance for me to have all that intense young physical years balanced by that. And, and it's also, yeah, it's a huge project that
1: it's, it's more daunting, I think, for women Can when they you- push it off. Can I just say something? Uh, This is really not politically correct. Okay. But I'm going to say it anyway. Mm -hmm. And you can always uh, take it out if you want (laughs) to. What I always tell my students is this. If you see a woman who has it all, she's got the career. She's got the beautifully kept home. The kids are this. She's got a great figure. She always looks put together. The whole, you know, there's one of three things going on. Okay. Either she has a lot of money or she has a lot of help or she's on drugs. It, it can't be done. <laughs> I hear. It I, I also I really I'm very, really can't very, uh, be done. So women have over-idealizing right, and anyway. so women have to prioritize. And the other thing, also politically incorrect, if you're lucky enough to have a problem that can be solved by throwing money at it, throw money at it. Don't clean it's your a own great house. Piece of advice. Yeah. Don't clean your own house if yeah. you want to write the next doctorate on the Benishkhai so get someone else to clean your house. Yeah, if you. I mean, again, money is a problem too. but No,
0: I, 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 I. Um, it's a very important point, and also in Israel in particular, where help is a lot less. Um, household help is a lot less. Available. Normative. Mm-hmm. No, it's not even less available anymore. It's a lot less normative. It's yeah, it's, yeah. it's not. You know, when you come from a world where having someone help here and there around the house is very is very common. Uh, it's more common today, but it's still a much bigger emotional leap, I think, to actually reach out and get that help. Mm-hmm. So, I I want to just bring us back to the to the book um, publishing. After that comes
1: out, do you feel that it had a marked change on your career from that point on? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It, I, Tell it, us how. It, first of all, because people people took me more seriously. I'd written a book. Because it's sort of like maybe if I were a younger scholar today, I wouldn't have written the book. I would have done a doctorate. Yeah, and that, that would that have it's been the a, yeah, calling it's a card. worthy point. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um people began to be uh, I'm sure lots of people were interested in Midrash before, but people began to notice me as a person who could make Midrash accessible and I got more um invitations to speak, I got more uh jobs I, yeah, it definitely had an effect on my career you know um so and and when
0: you when I look at that book, and we're going to talk, we're going to speak soon about your new book. But when I look back on it now, and with with the different lenses that I like to look at things in, it's it uses academic rigor. You do not quote academic works. Correct me if I'm wrong in the footnotes. I mention no, because my work doesn't come from there. In- so that's what I want to ask you about. I want to talk about the question of influence. Uh, we mentioned before the official recording went on. Is that I. have I, for many years, sat behind Simi, who we didn't know each other in the in the library in the National Library, and so I know that certainly at this point in your life you are exposed and utilized and learn from yes the academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole you know there's a whole world of, of the academy that deals with rabbinic literature. Um, so I'm curious, how did you negotiate that kind of influence? Has that shifted also over time? Okay, so.
1: So um, I do mention in the book that I was influenced by the approach of Professor Yona Frankel, and I I had to make a decision. Let me back up. None of my readings in the book come from academic sources. All of the readings are mine, or where I mention it, based on the parshanim on the midrash, and there isn't a lot of parshanim on midrash. Right. Um, so none of the readings had to be attributed to anybody else because it was my own work. Um, I, I hesitated because I did not want to assume an academic mantle I don't actually wear. I don't have a doctorate. People have given me doctorates, by the way. It's interesting. Like I gave us, I was going to England for, a, to give a series of talks and they sent me the the publicity stuff, to check, and they wrote um, Dr. Simi Peters, and I had to tell them I don't have a doctorate. Oh, you're saying people awarded it to you in the people, title they gave you when you Yeah, 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 Okay, they, they gave me doctorates, yeah. they called me Rabbanit, they gave me, you know, and I'm very old-fashioned, I don't have smicha, my husband and I have smicha, I'm not a Rabbanit, and the whole mantle of the Rabbanit is also not one I'm comfortable assuming. So I did not want to create the impression that I have an academic qualification that i don't have mm-hmm. okay i have Povisham, i i'm in the book in footnotes i mentioned I, again i mentioned professor Yana frankel um it's interesting in the article that i wrote for uh, tradition which you read yeah which i sent you A forthcoming article Fourth. i uh, know i think it came out in oh. the spring oh, okay. in tradition i i think yeah i think it came out already so jeff Sachs was an amazing amazing uh a editor, yeah. Oh no, he's an amazing editor. I it's a pleasure to be edited by him. And he's he's really he's got such a a wealth of of um he's got such a depth of educational understanding. Yes, I yes. I really like Jeff Sachs. Okay, yes. but that's a that's a separate thing. In any event, he said to me, You've got to include some academic footnotes here. And I said, Well, but I didn't use any academic footnotes. And he said, Yes, but people are going to know that there's literature out there on this topic and if you don't cite it it's going to look funny so i did but um and and i have read i've re- you know i've read a lot of academic material on on um midrash uh things about or or let me put it this way the ac- the, the academy is good at talking about midrash mm-hmm. they're yeah. not so good at reading it line-by-line readings on the page where they show you, they make claims and they don't necessarily show you how those claims are backed up in texts. And um, I I have definitely benefited from reading uh, academic works. Uh, there's a lot I read that I don't like. Yeah. Um, there is something to be gained from the things I do like. Some of my reading is influenced by anthropology, sociology, and psychology, but I don't cite that either. So, um, and I don't cite Parshan Neh because I barely use them. They're not the uh, you know, they're more like annotations than anything else. Uh, and where I take an insight from a Parshan, I do cite it. So it's complicated. I didn't want to jargon it up, and I also didn't want to make broad sweep. Sweeping claims about midrash, Allah, academic style, Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to make it accessible, and I didn't want to pretend to a qualification I don't have. So that I think that's it. The intellectual rigor I got, I got in school in in high school. Strangely enough, Mm. Um, it because Torah was being taught there with more rigor than it is now taught in most. Jewish day schools, Beis Yaakovs, or whatever. So maybe that's also something that kept me deeply connected to the original understanding of Midrash I learned as a kid, which was that Midrash is Parshanut Chazal on Tanakh, which is not my final sort of bottom line uh, definition of Midrash. But, you know... Reading In reading the best of academia, there were things I saw that I had already been exposed to, though they were not formulated in that way. Mm-hmm. If, I hope that's clear.
0: Yeah, no, it is clear. You know what, I, I want to hear the example that you've brought for us today, and then oh, sure. I, I want to ask you something else about what, what that is in Midrash that pulls at you so deeply.
1: Okay, so I'm going to paraphrase this because there isn't really time to do it uh justice if I read and translate this. You know, it's just not going to work. But um the last three p'sukim of the Torah say something very straightforward, w- which has tremendous theological significance. It's Dvarim Lamedalit, starting from Pasuk Yud, navi od Moshe asher yidao Hashem panim El panim, l'chol haotot asher... And there did not arise another prophet in Israel like Moshe, whom God knew face to face, who did all of these miracles uh, in front of the people of Israel. That's the, you know, essence of the Pasuk. Uh, the Sifrei says something really strange here. The Sifrei says, there did not arise in Israel a prophet like Moshe, but among the nations there did arise a prophet like Moshe, which is Bilam. And the Midrash appears to describe Bilam. It's in the Sifre. It's at the very end of the Sifre. If you want to look it up, it's 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 an interesting formulation. The uh, version of the Sifre that I use is in the Ramban on um, Parshat Balak. Okay, But the Sifre says, But there did arise another prophet, like, uh, greater than, implying greater than Moshe among the nations. Now, given the theological significance of these psukim, which is we are sealing the Torah with the statement that there is no Navi who can supersede Moshe, (laughs) which means you have to keep the Torah, it's an extremely strange statement. And uh, the, the two questions I had when I first learned that midrash were first of all, why are you saying this? What, what what's this about? Why, why undermine Moshe? Why undermine why, why Moshe? Put that out there in the world. Why put that out there in the world? And on what basis are you saying this? So, when you start to think about this question, one of the things that you notice is that there are many, many parallels between Moshe and Bilam. Right? They're both prophets. They're both highly accomplished poets. Uh, Bilam's poetry is is that he he delivers are uh, some of the most lyrical psukim in
0: Torah. My daughter is learning them right now and repl- and re- saying them out loud, memorizing them in my
1: house. So They're beautiful. They're yeah. beautiful. Um, both of them defy God, right? Moshe originally doesn't want to go to Mitzrayim. Bilam defies God in the opposite way. God doesn't want him to go to curse the Jews, but he, he defies God. Um, they both, uh, there, there were other parallels. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, association of the word to see in both stories. There are many literary parallels. Probably the strongest is the description of Moshe going to, uh, Eretz Mitzrayim to finally reluctantly fulfill the mission that Hashem wants him to fulfill after he encounters God at the Sneh and at the burning bush. And, um, on the way, you get this strange, enigmatic story. Moshe is on his way, he stops at an inn, and uh, Hashem wants to kill him, and he's saved by his wife, Tzipora. Okay. Now, if you look at those two stories, the second one being Bil'am on his way to curse the Jews in Arvot Moab, um, there are many, many parallels, even in the language. Both of them are accompanied by two Naarim, right? Moshe, two his two sons, mm-hmm. two lads. Moshe has two sons. Bilam, his two servants. We don't need to know that Bilam is accompanied by his ser- servants. We would assume that anyway. Moshe is described as riding a chamor, a donkey. Bilam is described as riding an aton, a, 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 a she-ass, mm-hmm. female donkey. Um, Moshe is carrying a stick. Bilam is carrying a stick. Moshe is saved by his wife. Bil'am is saved by the female, female. donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many parallels there. Okay. And I believe that Chazal are picking up in the biblical text. And again, this is not a, a full line by line analysis of the Midrash, which would be more fun to do, but what can we do? Um, Moshe, have read the article. you'll have to read the article. Moshe and Bil'am are very, are, are being portrayed as parallel uh figures. The Torah is drawing an illusion between the Moshe on the way to Mitzrayim story and the Bilam on the way to Arvot Moab to curse the Jewish people story. Okay. So you have to ask yourself, what are we being told here? Okay? Now what you pick what you pick up here, and this is the top Bezra Hashem, the subject of my next book is when Chazal draw parallels between biblical figures or biblical stories, where we wouldn't draw those parallels, we wouldn't think to draw those parallels, what are they asking us to do? I believe this is a good example of them asking us to compare and contrast the stories, to play the stories off each other, so that you will understand each story individually better. Okay? Shockingly, we come to the conclusion Shockingly and enlighteningly, we come to the conclusion that Moshe and Bilam are very much alike. There's a lot of preoccupation with the mouth, with speech in both stories. Moshe says, I can't speak. Hashem says, don't worry, I'll put my words in your mouth. Bilam says, I want to go there. Hashem says, you're not going to be able to say anything except what I put in your mouth. There's so many parallels between these two men. Chazal is saying, I read this story. I read this story. I look at this personality. I look at this personality and I have to see that God is telling me something about the connection between these two people. Right? And I think the answer here and again if we had more time I would I, I would do a better job, but I think what we're seeing is that Moshe could have been Bilam and Bilam could have been Moshe. Right? Uh these are two people with similar talents, inclinations, um Experiences in certain ways, and yet Bilam is the Rasha. He's the evil, uh, the evil, evil uh, person who makes his living cursing people. That's the kind of person he is. And Moshe is Moshe Rabbeinu, He's he's our teacher. He has given the world the Torah. What's the difference between these two people? It's almost like the Seir la Azazel, right? The two. The two, yeah, three, and three, 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 yeah. Three, three. sir Lashem, Hashem, sir la they're, they're they're almost the same person, but they're really, really not. And I think the answer is that um, Bilam, who is when the, when the midrash says among the nations no one arose, uh, I'm sorry, among Israel no one like Moshe arose. Among the nations there was someone who arose like Moshe, and yet. You know, we, we obey Torah Moshe. Nobody's interested in what Bilam has to teach us about the world or anything else. So, so it's an example of a place, and there are many such midrashim. It's almost a genre of its own. And this is the topic of the next book. This is the topic of, of this the next genre book. of midrash. Yes. So, for example, why do Chazal point out that both Rifka and Tamar wear veils, wear veils and give birth to twins? okay, there's two minor details, what's going on over here. Mm -hmm. Why do they connect the raven in the Noah story to the raven in the Eliyahu story? Because the birds are mentioned there? What's that about? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a a process of comparison and contrast that Chazal use all over the place in Midrash. They use it in the parable form. They use it in other ways. They use it in Halakha too. They compare and contrast cases. Mm -hmm. Comparison and contrast are interpretive um, tools the Chazal use, and if we understand that, that's what they're doing. We we understand these texts so much better. I guess I I, I want
0: to ask you, what is it about Midrash that that pulls you in? Before you answer, I I love stories. Okay, meaning I I'm a real words person. It's one of the reasons I wanted to pick this topic for our next series and. And I I write about literary approaches to Tanakh because it comes from a very deep place. I, I love story, I love literature, I love the I love the symmetry, I love the intentional and the non intentional that goes into writing. Um what is it can you pinpoint something specific in Midrash? What is it about it as opposed to let's say even Tanakh itself? Meaning which there's they're two different officially in the academy, they're really they're two different areas. mm mm-hmm. Um what is it about it that really
1: draws you in? So it's interesting. I started out as a Nach teacher because Nach is more literary than Torah. It has more of the human literary element in it. And I am also a person who is very drawn to literature, language, a beautifully written and beautifully spoken language really, really speak to me. And Midrash is beautiful. It's It's aesthetically extremely pleasing. But... I think what really drew me to Midrash, and I'm not sure if I made up this phrase or if I read it somewhere, and that's why I'm putting it out there as, I'm not sure, this is my own thought. I see Chazal as the as the vast unconscious of the Jewish people. Mm. And Midrash, uh, everything we as Jews, Jews who are faithful to Torah, mitzvot, everything we do is drawn somewhere, From something in Chazal, even if the connection seems distant. Midrash is even more than Midrash Halakha, obviously, or other other ways that Chazal, um, other styles in which Chazal teach. Midrash is almost like learning Midrash is getting in touch with the unconscious. It's so deep, it's so profound. It is our collective consciousness and a lot of people don't really get it, don't really learn it, don't study it with rigor and, and they miss a lot, but everybody connects. Um, it's powerful. It's very, very powerful. It's full of emotion and it is still tied to a highly sophisticated way of thinking about the world. That's, that's a rare combination of things. A sophisticated philosophical system that is full of piety, emotion and love and beauty. You know, when
0: you, when you describe me, Josh, in that way, it's funny because for many of those same reasons, I'm drawn to learning the text of Tanakh. Obviously. And so, Obviously. meaning the Midrash is Chazal's expansion Yes, uh, on that. But th- those are almost the same sentences that I, I would offer for the text. I'm, 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 I'm sharing in that love with you, meaning yeah. that you feel like you're swimming in the DNA of everything that ever was. Right. And it's a very...
1: I I think Chazal saw themselves as the Mamshi. I think I think even Yona Frankel says this. I think he's, I may have heard him say it. I don't think I read some of these. I think he said something like Chazal Derech Chazal saw themselves as the um into the spiritual um inheritors. Is a better no, word for that? No. Yeah. Of inheritors. the of the Tanach, uh, the people who were following the path of the Tanakh.
0: Okay, um, just tell us, uh, before we're going to have to close this conversation, unfortunately, but your new book is coming out this year? Why don't you no, you look out for
1: I it? actually, um, my my book is coming out, my first book is coming out in translation, Bezrat Hashem, first. Amazing. And my new book is, I would say, three quarters written. Okay. so we have <laughs> still finish. have to finish it, and it will be coming out afterwards, Bezrat Hashem. Okay, yeah. we'll we'll look out for it.
0: Right. Um I think uh I always like to close these conversations with with a little
1: lightning round of questions. Okay. Okay, you ready? Uh, I'll honest. I'll be a big girl and, and <laughs> I'll I'll deal with this. Okay, great. You my my, said, my son, my my son, when I showed him the document, yeah. he said to me, Zemma she showed Okay. <laughs> what kind of questions are these? it's Israeli. It's very Israeli. They're a
0: little, a little window into, okay. uh, into the world the of, of semi Peters. Okay. So it really, it just association. Okay. You don't no no, no, a long, long answer is required. What books are on your nightstand or book? I just usually, there are multiples. Yeah.
1: yeah. There are a few. Um, right now during the corona, I started reading more fiction and I usually reread 19th century fiction because A lot of 20th century fiction is just not great. I read a lot of nonfiction, but right now, I have a book on my uh, blue plastic Keter nightstand. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually a children's chair, but it works very well. Okay. (laughs) Which is, um, Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light. She wrote a trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. And um, the first two were amazing. Wolf Hall and bring up the bodies this one is not amazing but it's very good Wow! and i'm enjoying that very much okay i want to check that out uh if you could sit down with
0: anyone someone who's alive dead famous mundane uh for a drink of coffee or tea whatever drink works people had very different <laughs> Tea, opinions tea is good it, strong tea. english okay. tea yeah for, with good for good strong english tea who who would it be
1: so, um, I'm very lucky in that most of the people I want to talk to, I have been able to talk to uh, yes. for a cup of coffee or tea. Yeah. Or still can, Bar HaShem. Um, and some of the people I would do anything to speak to would not be sitting with me over a cup of tea like Rashi or the Ramban. So that's not, you know. But I thought of two people, actually. I thought of one, one is Atul Gawanda. He's a, uh, he's, you know who he is, right? I do. Yeah. He writes beautifully. Yeah. I'd love to speak to him about writing. His writing is koleach. It just flows. It's it's really, really good. He's a very busy man. He's a doctor, and he writes about medicine. I love the way he writes. I'd love to be able to speak to him about writing. He's also the son of immigrants, which, yeah. you know, again, I see um so much taller than me. I've seen pictures of him. He's a giant. But he, I'd love to talk to him. And the other person I could think of who... Yeah, uh, I could actually probably share a cup of tea with would be George Eliot, who is one of my heroes. You know, so she's 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 an incredible writer. Um, your favorite tefillah? It's a hard one to answer because um that is perhaps the most personal question you've asked me. I would say the tefillah that. I most connect with is Ahavat Olam mm-hmm. Habtanu, which is, which in Nusach Ashkenaz is Ahavah Raba. But you know, some tefillot we need at different times. Yeah, it's a dynamic question. It's a dynamic. It's not, it's not question. a question that has one answer, right?
0: I, I definitely understand that. Something unexpected—I mean, that others wouldn't expect—that
1: you feel passionate about. Well, my daughter says. Whatever I'm doing at any given time is my favorite thing. (laughs) Um, What do I feel passionate about? I feel passionate about most of what I do, I have to say. I have a, a, a weird affinity for gospel music. People don't expect that. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I also like it. <laughs> I mean, not the not the overtly, you know, uh, Avodazara aspects like you know the Jesus songs and stuff like that. But there's there's something about gospel music that just it so touches me it's, it's soulful, soulful. Oh, right? It's it yeah. soulful,
0: baby. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, an exotic location that you would like to visit?
1: An exotic location that I would like to visit. If I'm honest. I'm not a big traveler, but I would love to see Scotland.
0: Another thing we have in common.
1: Oh, look at that! <laughs> I'd love to see Scotland. That that does that does sort of call That does sort of call me. I
0: I totally hear you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Any hidden talents? We know some of your revealed ones, but any hidden talents? I'm a bad crocheter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, I, everything I'll I will know we're not to go. <laughs> No, I, I, I crochet things badly. Okay. But I get a certain amount of pleasure from that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the, yeah, we're going back to the, the toil. You're toiling <laughs> to then get
0: to a, a better place. Um, please share with us something that you're grateful for in your life
1: right now. It's easy. That Baruch Hashem, that we all in my larger family and immediate family made it through Corona alive, is something for which I am extremely grateful.
0: I mean, that Corona is in our
1: past, according to that sentence. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Being the child of Holocaust survivors, I am naturally pessimistic about disasters. <laughs> <Me> but <too>. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that Hashem has brought us this far, and I know many people have suffered very, very badly in all sorts of ways from Corona, not just directly from the disease. I'm extremely grateful. That we're, you know, again, everyone in my immediate family and my extended family is alive and well after Corona. I mean,
0: Sammy, thank you so much for this conversation. It
1: was fun. It was fun. I enjoyed it very
0: much. uh, Great to be here. And everyone should please uh, check out check out your your book and your forthcoming book Bezrat Hashem in Hebrew will enable you to reach additional audiences and and it will by the way it's going to be a great thing Bezrat Hashem and and so thank you so much
1: a pleasure a pleasure
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did I am Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One Women Talk Torah a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's tour learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback at podcast.matan.org.il. That's podcast at podcast.matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.